At photographycourse.net, you'll be able to swap your expertise with other photographers, make light instead of wishing for it, expand your portfolio, and receive feedback from professionals, all of which will develop your artistic eye. Photographycourse.net offers an abundance of premium courses and challenges for participants at every stage of their journey, from technical settings for portrait photography, to landscape composition tricks, to how to start your own photography business, we have everything you need to start shooting confidently. You can work at a pace that suits you. Our 52-week project challenge will provide you with the educational resources, encouragement, and support that you need to take great photographs every week. You can join us at any time as our themes are evergreen. You can also start by shooting every day and learning something new with our 365 Days of Photography course. Led by an industry expert who has mentored over 10,000 students, this course will help you take your photography skills to the next level with daily, bite-sized videos. Throughout the process of learning, you'll have access to a community that will provide you with inspiration and motivation. Get encouragement from other photographers every single day. Our current limited time offer comes with a special discount code exclusive to the listeners of this podcast. Get 50% off your first year as a premium member. Claim this discount by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST. Come join photographycourse.net and capture more than just a moment. Hello everyone, my name is Taya and I'm the host of Great Big Photography World Podcast, where we interview notable photographers in the industry, give advice on a wide variety of topics, and provide tips for beginners and professionals alike. Welcome to the 100th episode. We're so excited that we've reached this far. We've had the chance to interview some incredible photographers around the world, and we look forward to continuing to do that, all thanks to your support. So thank you, first and foremost, to listeners for listening to the podcast, for supporting us, and for always being eager to improve your photography. In this week's episode, I talked to the very talented Dan Rubin, who is a designer and film photographer with a very large following online. He has over 600,000 followers on Instagram alone, and he has a very, very healthy relationship with social media. So we talk about that, we talk about his life as a designer and how it has impacted his photography, how he sets boundaries online, and much more. Please enjoy. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here. Please introduce yourself to the listeners. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's an honor. My name is Dan Rubin. I'm a designer and photographer originally from Miami Beach, Florida in the United States. And for the last 10 years or so, I've been based uh, in and around London in the United Kingdom. Uh, my photography practice spans a lot of different styles, for better or for worse, uh, for everything from portrait to landscape to editorial and commercial work. And I'm uh, I'm a big fan of shooting on film. Most of my work is uh, analog, a little bit of digital when it's appropriate. Uh, and I primarily work with natural light, even when I'm in a studio. Wonderful introduction. I'm a great fan of your work, a huge fan of your work. I love the style. I love the storytelling aspect. And I like that you use both film and digital because uh, I think for a lot of photographers, and you've mentioned this in many of your past interviews, film photography is this intimidating creature because they're, you know, they're afraid of the cost. They're afraid of failing and creating lots of photographs that don't look great but you encourage people to just move past those fears and try something new it's a wonderful thing that you're doing well thank you that's very kind 
Speaking of film photography, I'm curious to know what your camera equipment is. Oh goodness. Well, the the, the overall list would be too long to <laughs> to mention. We'd use up the whole podcast. I I've uh, I, well, I'll make one reference to that. When I when I first got into photography, it was through being a designer and a designer very interested in tangible products. And so my love of cameras came first without thinking that I would ever really be able to use them to create anything artistic. And that kind of led very quickly to me having a lot of different cameras because I was trying to figure out why the differences in their design made the work different. And that kind of snowballed into a, a horribly large collection of cameras that's way more than anyone ever needs. So at the minute, uh, I do switch up my my gear a lot depending on the uh, the output or or a particular trip or if there are any re restrictions around you know uh, how much I need to carry or what I'm trying to capture. Right now, I've got um, a different selection than I uh, have had for for quite a while, but they're some of my favorite cameras. Uh, I have a, a Pentax six seven, which is a lovely medium format uh, film camera. Uh, with a couple of lenses, uh, a 105 and a, a 45. I have a, I have more, but I'm traveling and trying to travel light at the minute. And anyone who knows a Pentax 6.7 knows that it isn't light and the lenses aren't light. Mm -hmm. So two of those plus the camera is quite a bit. And then I've got uh, a uh, Leica M3, which is one of my oldest cameras or ones that I've had for the longest period of time. Very nice old manual uh, rangefinder, and it's. Uh, it's being used because I haven't used it in a few years. I've been using my M6 for a while, but that's in the shop getting a, getting a, a long overdue CLA. And then I have um, a Hasselblad X-Pan, which is a 35 millimeter panoramic format camera, which if your listeners haven't seen one of those before, seen the output from it, uh, I highly recommend looking it up. It's a camera that now is uh, like with all analog cameras, uh, the price is skyrocketed on. I'm very lucky that I, discovered it and got my hands on one many years ago before they had become ridiculously expensive. And it's a it's a panoramic format camera that um, allows you to see because of that in a way that uh, most other cameras don't. I mean, it, there's something really special about formatting images for for a very wide aspect ratio. And I love I love shooting with it. I haven't shot with it during most of the last two years because of uh, the, the pandemic situation where a lot of my cameras were stored and I couldn't actually get to them because of travel restrictions. So I, I pulled it out of storage a couple of months ago and I've been shooting with it in the studio and in landscapes, um, like just the whole spectrum since. And it's just, uh, it's just a marvelous thing. So, uh, so those are, that, that's the, the film complement at the minute. And then, um, then my digital that I always travel with is in my bag, which is the Leica Q. Uh, it's a, a kind of an odd, camera um it's not the only digital i own but it ends up being the one that i always travel with because it's fixed lens has a 28 millimeter lens on it which means uh, it's very compact uh, it's not as compact as some of the say the the uh, fuji point and shoot style digitals but it still doesn't require anything other than a battery charger and a couple of extra batteries and because of that i can always stick it in any camera bag just in case I run into a situation when I'm traveling that needs digital, and usually that's something that needs a very high ISO, that's what uh, digital usually fulfills for me now. So if I need to shoot in the dark or inside under unknown conditions, rather than 
really trying to stretch what uh, what I know film is capable of. I go for digital just because I know exactly what I'm going to get and I don't have to be worried about it while I'm capturing. Amazing list of equipment. And I read somewhere that you have over 50 cameras, right? Oh, goodness. Yeah, I wasn't going to mention because I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to brag. As I said, <laughs> I think it's way more than anyone needs. But yeah, it is. It's, uh, I, 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 haven't, uh, I haven't actually done a full count uh, in a in a good few years, but uh, the last time I did it was just over fifty. And I mean, in that, that is a lot of cameras. But it, um, as a as again as a product designer, it's not a lot of examples, or it's actually a good amount of examples, maybe of uh, of a span of different styles. And and I will say this: at least ten of those fifty are versions of the Polaroid SX seventy, the folding Polaroid that started. Uh, started its life in the early 1970s because that camera was what actually got me into photography seeing that that original kind of chrome and 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 leather camera which a lot of people at least know of if they haven't seen one in person and that camera kind of completely changed my life and changed my trajectory and so i i very early on when i would find others which were all cheap because no one wanted them back then the film had been discontinued um if you could find the, the original Polaroid film back in 2007-ish, uh, it was slowly going up in price and people just weren't interested in it. So they weren't interested in the cameras either. So I would find all the different models of them, some of them broken, some of them working. Um, and I, I would just kind of snap them up in case I needed spare parts, or maybe I would find other versions. Like there's a there's a, a very long, ungamely version that has autofocus and a flash, the uh, SLR 680. And I have one of those. Um, and so it's very easy to get to kind of 10 out of that 50 that are just Polaroids. But aside from that, it's a, yeah, it's still more cameras than anyone needs. You should have your own camera museum. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, may, maybe one day. I, I did I did have, oh gosh, it's six years ago now, but I had a, a little fun project with Ikea in, um, in the UK where they, they were doing a promotional exhibition of lots of different collections. And one of, uh, obviously to show off some of their particular uh, uh, shelving units. And the agency that was putting that together was an agency I'd done a lot of commercial work with. And they asked me if I would want to be involved with my camera collection because it had come up in conversation. So I've actually had a good number of my cameras. I think there were probably 30 of them on display in that exhibition. It was kind of fun to see because it, it does make a little bit of a, uh, of a museum of sorts because I've got this wide range from, you know, gosh, from from 110 format and and APS uh, to 35 mil to medium format across the board, and then a handful of four by five and a, even a one eight by ten camera. So uh, and plus all the Polaroids. So it's a it is definitely an interesting collection in that way, and uh, uh, hopefully someday I'll I'll be in a position to kind of do a proper job cataloging it and maybe put all of them in the studio and take pic proper pictures of all of them. They put them online so that uh, um, people can see them wherever they are. And maybe I can, uh, you know, include pictures that were taken with them and talk about how I acquired them. I think the stories around objects in general, but specifically cameras are fantastic. And they're not something that we really know with all, everyone's using all these analog cameras and none of us know who bought them originally. I mean, we, sometimes we do, I've got one or two cameras that came from their original owners. And so I know their, their history, but I'm very conscious of that. And it's one of the things I'd really like to do is at least tell my story 
of each of the cameras that I have so that whoever owns them after me will have some sort of connection to, um, to the life they had before. Yeah, that's something I think a lot of people would be interested in, including myself. I mean, you could create a whole <laughs> based on the history of all your cameras and what you've created with them. It could be this huge, incredible project. Well, um, now that we've now that we've had this conversation about it, um, I, I, it's, I'm starting to be able to picture it in my head. So uh, I've, I've thought about it in various versions before, but it's uh, this is one of the wonderful things about having conversations and being asked these questions that you're not necessarily prepared for is that uh, the answers sometimes surprise you. And uh, in this case, I've, I've never really described how I might put those stories together before. I've just had conversations with friends and other people in the analog world about how great it would be to capture these stories. And I think I've just answered my own question, at least for, for my cameras, is that it's kind of up to each of us, at least until there's a database that collects everyone's stories everywhere, which I'm not uh, willing to put time into right now myself to make. Um, we all have to do our best to kind of tell the stories about our, our cameras because we never know when when they're going to move on from us to someone else. And once that story has been recorded, it's there, it's somewhere, wherever that somewhere happens to be. So hold me accountable for it. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll, uh, I'll follow up later. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, we, I mean, even for digital cameras, that's something we can do just to leave something behind because uh, I think it was episode, I can't remember which episode it was, but it was an interview that I had with another film photographer, Ben Robson. And I remember he said in that interview that he had bought a camera that came with a notebook from the previous owner. It was somebody's grandfather. And he had written lots of notes and things he had, uh, you know, observed while using that camera. I thought that was such an incredible thing uh, to do because it made the experience for him all the more precious. Wow. That's, yeah, that's incredible. I... When I sent you an email, I received an automatic reply saying that you're trying to check your emails less often, which I think is a great way to refresh yourself as a person and as a photographer. How has this change affected your work? Uh, well, that's a, I'm really, really happy to talk about this because I think it's something that everyone should do. In its most basic form, it's just about setting boundaries. And that's something that none of us are really good at all the time. And thankfully, it's, it's a discussion point that's just coming up more and more, not just to do with technology, but to do with our personal relationships and our work relationships, because we've, we're understanding more and more that we need to kind of protect ourselves in order to get the best out of ourselves, whatever that protection ends up meaning. And for me, uh, protecting my time and my attention is really, really important. Part of that is because I'm very easily distracted. So I, and I acknowledge that I've always been um, very easy to lead off course. Um, part of that is also because I, I like helping other people. I like responding to other people's needs. And I've, that's partly a personality trait, but I've also been doing that professionally my entire life. So always essentially working in client services until within the last kind of five to 10 years where I've started mixing in different things that are more artistic, more driven by things I just want to do rather than responding to someone else's brief. But because I know I'm really good at jumping whenever anyone says they need my help, things like email and messaging services and even notifications on our devices are really dangerous to my focus and my attention. And I'm not saying I've solved this 100%, but back in 2015, I guess, 
So we're going back a little while here. But in 2015, I decided that it was really pertinent for me to properly use autoresponders. Because um, I've always worked for myself in various forms, whether it's independent or running a small agency in the, in the States for years. But I never really used the out-of-office reply because it was called an out-of-office reply. And I was never out of the office because I was never really in an office. And it was just this little bit of like, even if it was called a vacation message, I mean, they were basically called one or the other. And I never really related to those terms. And I thought, well, it's not a big deal. I'll, I like what I do. I like being available. And it's not like I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night and respond to something or really respond to things on the weekends because, you know, um, even though I might work on the weekends, you have to set some boundaries. So I knew that. But over time, especially when I started to get a lot busier, which so 2015 was one of these years where I'd moved to the UK fully in 2013, started putting a lot more effort into photography as a source of income and professional work. Whereas prior to 2013, it had really just been a hobby for about five or six years alongside my design work. And when I made that change over those those next couple of years, my travel related work calendar became busier and busier and busier. So I ended up traveling, whether it was for speaking at conferences, which I've been doing since 2006 or so anyway, but I was speaking at conferences, traveling for photographic commissions, uh, traveling to meet with clients and teach workshops sometimes uh, in design and then doing the occasional personal travel. And I was traveling for more than half the year, like well more than half the year. And a lot of those trips would be times where I was hyper-focused on whatever it was I was doing because you kind of have to be. I've never been one of those people that's very good at, say, working a full day. Uh, if, if I'm doing a, a shoot, for instance, uh, for a tourism board, working that full day and being very engaged in what I'm doing and then going back to the hotel and spending three, four hours doing completely different things or email admin, that's, that's just never been something I do. I, I, I'm basically out of energy and out of focus. And so I tend to just lean in to the hyper-focus of, well, these four days or whatever length of time it is, I'm doing this thing and those other things will have to wait until I'm done with this. And because of realizing that that was best for me and that over a period of months, it meant that email was backing up a little bit. And I, I started to have people who were emailing me and just wondering why they weren't hearing back. I started using the away messages and I would, every trip, I would write a new one completely from scratch. So it was a very custom I tell, uh, message. I'd tell people where I was, what I was doing so that they had context. I was essentially designing the auto reply in those instances to set expectations I basically just treated it as a design exercise. And I thought, well, what if I were to use this very specifically? And it's not a vacation message. It's a, hey, look, here's what I'm doing. You might not hear from me until next week because I'm doing this crazy thing. Uh, I'm not ignoring you. I will get back to you if you're someone I'm working with. Uh, you already have other methods of communication and please feel free to use those, but just know what I'm doing. And I, I iterated on that for about a whole year writing different versions, seeing how people would respond to them, seeing what I heard back, if anything, from people. And I realized that it was working really, really well. It was diffusing any stress or anxiety or impatience with whether they were clients or just friends, whoever was emailing me. They were all very interested and understanding and accommodating 
because I was writing these, these very personal messages. And then it got to the point where I was away so much that I was basically just rewriting these messages every week, <laughs> uh, come, nearing the end of 2015. And, and I decided, uh, though that, that was working really well, but at the beginning of 2016, uh, very, like, un unfortunately, sadly, my, my father passed away. And that, for obvious reasons, meant that there was a big span of time after that where I wasn't getting back to anything. And uh, in a kind of positive way, one of the things that came out of that was I did have the presence of mind at the time to say, okay, I need to tell people that I'm just not going to be around for a while and that it doesn't mean I'm not interested, but I'm just dealing with something that's that's far more important than whatever it is they're emailing me about. <laughs> and so I wrote a, a version of that and just left it on for a few months because I didn't want to have to think about it. Uh, about updating it. And I was still doing some travel. I was uh, between the US and the UK um, doing, you know, fulfilling work obligations when I had them. And, uh, and then being back in the States with my family, with my mom and my brother and his family and kind of just doing all the things you have to do as a family. And so a few months in, I realized that, again, everyone was being super understanding, obviously, but also I realized that there was a way to kind of explain what I was doing and why I was sending these messages without having to add the specific context of why that message was there in the first place. Cause that was, that again, comes back to setting boundaries is that we're so not used to it, especially in, in the Western world. But I think, I think it happens everywhere. The more people I talk to, the more common this seems to be is that we feel like our time belongs to someone else, especially when we're doing client services, because someone's paying for our time or someone's about to pay for our time. We're asking about paying for our time and, or, or even people who work, and agencies and have full-time jobs, they, you know, they have a boss. They're almost certainly required to answer and, and be, be available. At least this is the idea. And the thing about setting boundaries is that we shouldn't have to explain why we're setting those boundaries, because that plays into this idea that we're, we have to justify why we're taking care of ourselves, which is a horrible thing. And I'd already experimented with this. I know this is a super long answer, but I think the context of this is really important for people because as a designer who's worked a lot in digital, I think about this stuff all the time because I don't feel like our technology that we're surrounding ourselves with is being built for our best interests. It's being built for humans to use, but the hardware and software is not being built to take care of us. And sometimes that's obvious, sometimes it's not. And there have to be some of us who are really critically thinking about this all the time. And so back in 2007, I actually had switched off my auto checking of email on all my devices because I was recognizing even then that the, that constant little ding that my email app would give me when a new message has shown up was a massive distraction and that I didn't need to be checking email throughout the day whenever someone else wanted my attention that it was okay for me to just say, no, I'm going to check email at the beginning of the day and the end of the day, or if I've got nothing much going on, I can spend a couple of hours catching up. But aside from that, I don't need to know when someone else has decided to email me. And this then translated into having mobile phones, which I already had at that point, but the smartphone kind of made it a little bit worse because we're always on and we're always around it. And so if someone messages us, we see it right away. If someone calls us, we see it right away. And we feel like we have to drop everything, even though we have no requirement to do that. So I've been doing a lot of things in my life, essentially, that are working to push back in this way. And when I set that autoresponder and just left it, 
and realized that that was still working. Uh, a few months into 2016, I, I essentially rewrote it again and said, look, here's what I'm doing. So it's, a, it's still a version now of what it was back then. I just iterate it and update it kind of uh, once or twice a year. I work on the language to make it uh, feel a little, a, little, a little bit better to me, if nothing else. <laughs> but the whole idea is about just setting boundaries and setting expectations. So when people email me, they know that I value my time and attention. And it's not that I don't value whatever they're emailing me about. But they have to understand that in order for me to do my best work, I need to focus on it. And anyone who's a client completely understands because they want me focusing on their work. They don't want me distracted by someone else's request. Uh, they don't care how many other clients I have or prospective clients. They want me working on their work when I'm supposed to be working on their work. And it's the same for family and friends. Because one thing anyone who's self-employed knows is that it can be very difficult for people who aren't self-employed but are your family and friends to understand that you're at work and that you might be at work for a random half hour on a Wednesday night at 10 o'clock. <laughs> and so being able to set boundaries like that in, in certain places, whether it's your inbox or by turning off notifications. Uh, I mean, Apple is, is making iOS better at this and Android's getting better at this as well, where we can set autoresponders on things like text messages. We can set, we've been able to set away messages on things like WhatsApp and other messaging services for years, although not many people use them. But I think it's really important for us to take advantage of every opportunity that technology gives us to protect ourselves so that we can do a, a just a better job of being human and, and not be stuck in our screens all the time. That's an incredibly thoughtful answer. Thank you very much for diving deep into this topic because <laughs> it's very important, truly. I, when I received that automatic reply from you, I... I kind of sat back and I thought about my own habits online. So I think that you were encouraging others, clients or just people that you know via email to think about the way that they present themselves online, think about how much time they spend online. Because we often feel like we are not ourselves. We, are, we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to other companies. We belong to the people who pay us or we belong to social media or whatever it is, just because so many other people are doing it. Um, I feel like mm -hmm. we you know, not have boundaries just because uh, we are afraid of missing out, essentially. Well, and the, the last thing I'll say, because I, I realized that in that super long explanation, I didn't answer the second part of, of your question, which is how did it, has it affected my photographic practice? And it hasn't negatively. And that's really the big fear that people have, is that when they set boundaries, it will somehow hurt them. <laughs> which is and and I don't just mean that in terms of of our work relationships I mean that's really why we don't we're not good at setting boundaries in any part of our lives is that we think people will be offended or somehow upset at us or react negatively in some way and the reality is is that I've had I've had no one react negatively to that autoresponder in and it's been going now 6 years plus the additional 7th year of me doing it very contextually on every trip and there was never a negative response. Usually, if I hear anything back about it, it's that people say, oh, that's fantastic. I wish I could do that. And my response to them is always, why don't you? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a very wise approach. Uh, personally, I've been feeling quite overwhelmed myself because of the online world and because of emails. And I set boundaries the way that you used to set boundaries, as you mentioned earlier, you know, just on weekends, maybe, or feeling like uh, um, you know, just once in a while, 
but never sending out an autoresponder or anything like that. So that's something I'm very unfamiliar with. And the concept of it is very uncomfortable to me, as I'm sure it is to many of the listeners, but it's a, it's a very important topic. So thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on it. And I hope that we continue to use our technology wisely. Well, and it's not any different to me than appropriately setting your value when you uh, send a proposal to a client or or controlling your calendar correctly and, and wisely when discussing deliverable deadlines with a client. And I'm, I'm using client examples here because I think it, it makes sense in context. But, you know, if you tell someone that you'll, you know, you'll do a shoot for them and then you'll deliver all the images to them the next day, their expectations have now been set whether or not you can make it. If you can make it, great. Probably not great because I think that's ridiculous. But you might be staying up all night and again, not taking care of yourself. But if you don't make that, you've now broken the expectations that you set. And the interesting thing is, is that in my life of uh, design and photography kind of client work, what I learned, and this is why I'd started using that autoresponder in the first place, was that people often have their own expectations, even though they won't mention them to you. And we find this a lot in personal relationships, for sure. No one really communicates what it is that they want or, or assume or anticipate, but then they'll react based on those assumptions, uh, whether or not you knew that they were assuming something or not. And clients are often like this because they have no idea what we in the creative world actually do. And a lot of it seems like magic. And a lot of what seems like magic it appears to not have any work behind it at all or not take any time at all. And so it's very, very important just in general to be really clear with what people should expect from you. And being very proactive about that when we're not used to being proactive is just difficult, but it's something we can solve as long as we practice it all the time. So uh, what I'd say is don't make this about email for anyone who's just listening. That's one part of it. And I think it's important to think about everywhere that you interact with people and every topic that you interact with people on and think about how you can be more, more proactive about letting people know what to expect from you and when and why maybe, but don't worry too much about the why. Just be very clear with people because more often than not, what you'll find is that they will just take whatever you say as the truth. They don't have any reason to not trust you, but they don't have any actual information to draw on. So they might have an assumption, but that assumption can be overwritten by whatever you explain and tell to them. And, and one direct example of this that I get asked a lot by photographers who don't shoot film is uh, related to deliverable timings. So a lot of photographers who shoot digital, will, when I say I primarily shoot film, will say, oh, well, but does, doesn't that take too long when you need to get images to the client quickly? And my answer is always, well, A, most of the time, the clients never need things that quickly, even if they say they do. If you ask them why, they might not have an answer for it. And it's really important to ask your clients why they have certain deadlines, because they might have just made it up. Most of the time, they have just made it up, and they don't actually need it as quickly as they think. Um, the other part of it is that if you explain from the get-go, so I, I make sure people know I shoot film, and when they're when we're talking about scheduling for a project, I tell them, okay, well, if this is when the shoot is, here are my normal timings for getting my scans back after the film is delivered to the, the lab. And usually they're totally fine with it because they don't know. They, you know. they might have this idea that 
you know, labs used to be one hour photo labs and that still exists in some places. And it's a, but that's very much a, a consumer level drop your one roll of 35 millimeter or your disposable camera off and that it goes through an automated machine and then you get prints back. And that still exists in some places, but that might be the only frame of reference that people have. So you have to explain to them what a professional workflow looks like. And it's the same if you're shooting digital. People don't know that the images don't come out looking final straight from the camera, which sounds ludicrous to those of us who, who know what post-production workflows look like, but people don't know. They don't really understand. They might have a vague idea of it, but it's our job as the creative professionals to educate our clients so that they know what to expect. If they are hiring us for our best work, we have to let them know what it takes to produce that best work. And that includes things like scheduling on a calendar. You know, I might have time for a shoot, but not time for the post-production because I'm going straight to another shoot. And the client needs to know that because I can't work magic. I can't, I'm, I'm only one person. And I'm not going to give up my sleep for, uh, you know, to, to spend extra time editing. So I'll let them know. I'll say, okay, well, I can schedule your shoot here, but I won't be able to start post-production until 10 days later because I've got other things booked. And if you're not okay with that, then you shouldn't hire me. But, uh, you know, if your deadline uh, will allow that time, then then we're totally fine. And again, most of the time, the response is completely positive and it's it's never been negative. I think maybe once or twice, uh, someone needed a, a faster turnaround in that kind of example. And I just wasn't available and I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to do the work myself. And the only, you know, I had an option to hire out the post-production to someone else. And so I did that and they paid an extra fee for it. And they had to know that that was basically ba due to the fact that it was, it was a rush job because they had this tight deadline and they hadn't left any other time to, to schedule the shoot. And again, the, so even though I, was raising the price in order to give them what they wanted because I explained it in detail to them. And it was ultimately, they, they knew it was their responsibility for not planning further in advance. It still worked out fine. And so again, the fear of things not working out and being told no, being turned down for anything, it just gets in the way of us doing or even trying something that benefits us in the long run and benefits the clients too. Absolutely. I mean, even just listening to your story, I felt a little bit tense because I imagined myself in a situation <laughs> and I thought, oh no, I would probably say, it's okay, I'll do it last minute. I'll lose sleep just so that you, you can pay me. And that just proves that we're living in an age where it's normal to overwork, it's normal to not set boundaries. So it's important to have these Completely. conversations, as I mentioned earlier, because you doing this, uh, us you know, people seeing this as some kind of radical act is wrong. It's a normal human thing to do, protecting yourself, <laughs> protecting your boundaries. It's it's to be expected. We shouldn't be lowering the bar. Exactly. And we just have to try and you can start in small ways, but un until you start, you don't, there's no way of, of knowing really that people are going to respond positively to it. And and it has to be it has to be a positive exchange too. Uh, you know, you can it'd be very easy to explain your boundaries in a very angry way, but that doesn't do anyone any good. So it's why I'm all, I, I try to be as open as I possibly can. And, and to have those conversations when I'm having them in person or over Zoom with, uh, with new clients, I, I let them know right away what kind of person I am and what to expect, because I also want it to be a good fit. If they're a client who just uh, expects uh, you know, me to do a shoot and stay up all night editing and deliver them files in the morning, they're hiring the wrong person. And I am, I have no problem letting them know that 
I'm the wrong person for it. I'd rather someone wants me so much for my work that they're they're willing to work with with me, not just treat me as some sort of uh, human powered uh, image making machine, right? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Which I think, unfortunately, it happens far too often. And I remember hearing years ago before I, I was using a camera, I remember hearing someone refer to contract designers in that kind of way where uh, once where in a lot of agencies will hire out work in the same kind of way to temps or just freelancers. And uh, someone at, at an agency once jokingly referred to th those people as uh, voice powered Photoshop interfaces. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a joke, but it was a joke based on the reality of how a lot of those creatives uh, were, were treated and still are. And so the only way for us to not be put in that position, as so many creative professionals are, is to explain where our boundaries are and, and stand up for ourselves. And again, we'll, everyone will be surprised at how much of the time people actually respect the boundaries when you establish them. If we don't establish boundaries, we can't expect anyone to magically know or read our minds. And again, this is just the same in personal relationships. We hear it all the time in romantic relationships and marriages where people don't explain what they need and what they want to each other. And that's where the problems come from because no one's a mind reader. And it's just the same for clients. We're all human in the end. And that's right. Yeah, it's a universal issue. And it's something that we should address more often. And as long as you're transparent about what you do, then everything should be fine. I mean, you might not always get the opportunity, but at least you stood up for yourself and you made your values clear to the client or to the person or whoever you're speaking with. Photographycourse.net is a place where you can find an abundance of photography inspiration in different forms like premium courses, articles, video tutorials, editing resources, and much more. We have a thriving community where you can meet new people, receive constructive criticism, and discover new ideas every single day. Here is a message from one of our top community members, Robert Morton. Hi, my name is Rob. I specialize in wildlife photography and landscape photography. I'm a member of photographycourse.net online community. I like the community because you get some fantastic ideas and some great feedback. So take your photography to the next level by clicking the link in the description. That's what I did, and I haven't looked back. If you want to join our online community, go to photographycourse.net and enter the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member. You have a class on Skillshare, and you, have, uh, you host workshops around the world, and you do so many interesting things. If the listeners want to start teaching others about photography, is there anything specific they should do? Oh, goodness. Well, just start, really. I mean, sharing is easy. Sharing basically costs you nothing. And I always enjoy teaching. I've been a, you know, a teacher in, in various forms, whatever that means. I think just like sharing what I know and what I'm passionate about with others since I was very young, whether that was in, in Boy Scouts as a youth leader or in my music life, which is completely different topic, but I, I've been a choral director and a vocal coach, and I always like teaching. And in design, I, the minute that I was able to, to start teaching people and sharing what I knew, I was excited to do it. And I still do that with photography. And I think that that's just the trick is that you have to, you have to want to share and then kind of put yourself out there because especially now with the ease of reaching people through 
various forms of social media, it's really easy to share what you know. So if that's on Instagram, you can make reels or post, you know, image carousels that show before and after images, you know, uh, to say, hey, here's here's how I edited this photo. You can do, you know, videos on Twitter. You can do some screenshots in a, a little Twitter thread that says, hey, here's here's this little thing that I figured out in Lightroom. Um, if you do this, 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 and this, here's the result, and here's how much time it'll save you. And the point is really to enjoy the sharing of it and assume that there's someone out there who doesn't know that thing. And I think a lot of the reason why people don't share and teach is that they assume the opposite, that they're the last person to find out this trick or that this trick isn't actually much of a trick. It's just a bit of a hack. And it, it you know, now this thing, this thing helps me, but no one's going to be interested in that. And one of the things I learned very, very early on about teaching in general is that you have to assume you have to assume that no one in the audience knows what you're about to tell them. And this is especially true when you're getting up on a stage in front of thousands of people to teach them at a, you know, speak at a conference or something like that, or to put yourself out there on the internet, which might be to thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people, right? And that's the the kind of scary thing is that what if what if we're laughed at? What if we say this thing and everyone goes, oh, you, you think that's special? Like, well, we already all knew that. And it's a very natural human emotion to kind of be intimidated by that prospect. But I think that's what we just need to get over. And if we look at everyone who teaches and shares, it's not that everything that they're teaching is brand new information. Because we could very easily watch a conference presentation or a Skillshare course or a YouTube video and learn maybe one thing. Maybe we don't learn anything from that video because we already happen to know that. But even when we do learn, it's rare that, we, that we're learning everything from scratch because we're already involved in whatever that profession or hobby or interest is. The only way that we're likely to learn something completely new that we have no knowledge of is when we're learning about some topic that we have no knowledge of. <laughs> which is totally fine as well. But as people who are teaching and sharing, we just have to realize that as humans, we come up with all sorts of interesting combinations of uh, steps and tricks and processes and workflows. And in sharing the way we do something, we might open a doorway for someone who hadn't thought of doing it that way before because their brain operates differently from ours. And that's where the value is. So what I just suggest is that you know, start sharing whatever it is you know. If, if it's something that appeals to you, not everyone has to, for sure, but don't worry about what platform it's going to be on. Uh, if you feel more comfortable sitting in front of a video camera and putting something on YouTube, and this might be your YouTube channel, then do that. If you want to do it on TikTok and do short little bites, do that. If, if Instagram and stills and writing makes more sense, then do that, or a blog or medium or uh, or an email newsletter, as uh, as one of my friends has been doing for an uh, last couple of years, my friend Wesley Verhova, he's, uh, his newsletter process is outstanding. And he's just passed his 50th issue of it. And he's always sharing. Sometimes it's things that he does. Sometimes it's interviews with other people. Sometimes it's behind the scenes kind of stories of how he did a certain thing. Or sometimes it's something that he's just learned that he enjoys so much that he wants to share with people. But the point is, is that there are so many ways of sharing and teaching the most important thing is to do some of it on some level, and it doesn't even have to be on social media, you know, it can be, uh, or, or on a platform, again, like Skillshare, it can be just personal. If you find someone around you who 
is interested in photography, help them, show them what to do, show them their way around the camera they just bought. Uh, if it's just family or if it's a friend, there are always opportunities to do that. And a lot of the time, those opportunities actually present themselves with people asking you a simple question like, you know, hey, I'm, I'm getting into film. Uh, you know, what medium format camera do you recommend? I literally just had someone ask me that last week. And it's so easy to give them an answer or to ask them a follow-up question that will lead to a better answer or to point them in the direction of somewhere that they can do more research. So the amount of involvement as well in teaching and sharing is kind of down to each of us. We don't have to write a course, <laughs> but if that's something you desperately want to do, write a course, get, write yourself an outline. Skillshare and other platforms are actually great at being able to, you can produce your own course and upload it. And then you promote it. And now you've got a course on a platform. So there are very few barriers to teaching and sharing now. And it's one of the great things about the internet is that it's always been about sharing of information. There's a lot of stuff that's obviously been layered on top of that over the decades. But at its core, the internet started out as a way for people to share information over vast distances. And it still does a really, really great job at that. Our 365 Days of Photography course is an amazing opportunity for you to grow as a photographer. My teammate, Kevin LJ, has produced this course in a step-by-step -step format, which is very easy to follow. The course is presented in bite-sized lessons, each with a practical challenge. You'll learn and practice a new aspect of photography every single day. Each lesson is around five minutes long, and you can spend as much time on the challenges as you like. There's also a friendly forum where you can share the photos you take and get constructive feedback from others in the course. Kevin's professional photography experience is extensive. He covers not only photography essentials, but also many genres of photography throughout the course. You will learn far more about photography than simply how to use your camera. For our listeners, we're offering a very special discounted price of $199. The final price will soon be $365, so make sure to take advantage of this great deal today. I love that, and I like that perspective because, uh, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of people are afraid that the knowledge that they have is knowledge that everybody else knows. And if they share it with the world, then it will be laughed at. And that's definitely not true. We shouldn't underestimate ourselves as photographers and as people. It's very easy to do that. Uh, so I think the biggest lessons from this episode are to, first of all, set boundaries and to not underestimate yourself, right? That's what I'm doing from this <laughs> the most. <laughs> Many other things. Good themes, good themes, right? Absolutely, very good things, uh, very important things. Um, Speaking of uh, you presenting yourself online, in one of your online profiles, you say that photography helps you understand how you see the world, which is a very interesting statement. Could you elaborate on that? Oh, that's a great question. It's one of those interesting things when, when we're asked to write bios or artist statements, most of us, I don't think, have any idea what that means. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we copy what we see somewhere else or we copy the, the essence of what we see somewhere else. And... I think artist statements are, are a good example of that, but um, especially when we see statements about work in exhibitions and galleries that are written by artists that haven't been edited by a curator or anything, we really start to see that is that they're all echoes of, of an idea that someone else once used, which was probably an echo of another echo of another echo. And they're because of that, they can feel a little bit empty. And I was very conscious of that when writing uh, my artist statement, which is what that particular line is from. 
And I spent a long time thinking about it because I discovered photography very late in life compared to a lot of people. I was, uh, gosh, I, I think I was just about 30 years old, which as, as someone who'd been painting from about 11 or 12 years old and a designer from about 16 years old, I'd been doing all this visual output creatively for a very long time, and especially professionally as a designer. And I'd come across photographers, I'd worked with photographers, I'd had friends who were photographers, and I'd never connected with the medium. So discovering it through the interest in these Polaroid cameras and then taking pictures and loving the pictures and, and, and kind of having my mind blown a little bit that there was this thing that I thought was off limits to me that was now open to me. It was very, very eye-opening. And so it wasn't probably a, for five or six years after that moment where I discovered photography properly that I would have written that artist statement. And that gave me the chance to reflect a lot about what it was that I loved the most about photography. And what I realized was that I'd gone through most of my life up to that point seeing things that I would have photographed, but not thinking about the camera as a tool to capture those scenes, whether they were you know, a patch of brilliant light on the landscape or a tiny personal moment between people. I've spent my entire life observing and seeing those moments, but because my foundation was in oils and watercolors, I, my brain all, always just thought, oh, I wish I had more time to kind of sit and paint that whatever it was that I would see. And so I would just save a lot of things that I saw in my in my head and be a little frustrated because I wasn't fast enough at painting or I just didn't have the time. You'd see a moment pass by and you go, oh, I'd love to just save that. And I find it hilarious that I never thought, oh, maybe I should pick up a camera um, until the time I did. So, so having five or six years to reflect on how having a camera in my hands all the time had changed me that's really what I came to is that it, I already knew how to see, or I like to think I, I'm constantly learning how to see better, but I, I knew how to see. I've always been a very observational person. I've always enjoyed people watching since I was very, very young. I liked being the fly on the wall and that's it, and watching people. I, if I, I don't go to a lot of parties, but if I was at a party, be likely to see me in a corner, just like observing interactions and watching people, which, some people I know find very strange if how they've met me is because I'm speaking on stage at a big conference or or they see me pop up on someone's YouTube uh, video as a guest or they or they see me performing as, on stage as a, as a musician because I can be very comfortable at the center of attention. But at my core, I like being very quiet and, and off to the side. And so photography, even when I just started doing commercial work and was having to write things like bios and artist statements, I realized that that was the thing I kept coming back to is that I've always seen the world, but I never had a way of freezing those moments so that I could then reflect on those moments in a more detached way. And that's what happens when you look at a photograph that you've taken not five seconds ago, but uh, five days ago, five months ago, five years ago, the more distance that you have from that moment, the more you're able to understand what it is about yourself in that moment that made you want to click the shutter at that time. And, and so for me, that's where that line comes from is that photography kind of, it really, it really does still today help me understand like how it is that I see the world. It helps me process 
what is happening without a lot of conscious thought at the time in the in the moment. I can be wandering around and seeing things and appreciating things, but not really understanding why I'm appreciating it or not even fully processing in that moment what's going on in my head. And when I get some distance from it and I can refer back to something, it's not just a memory for me. It's also kind of a, a, a way of channeling my past self to my present understanding of what was going on in my head at that time. And it's really, really interesting, especially now that I've got over 10 years worth, you know, probably nearly 15 years actually worth of photographs that I look back and I actually, I do see growth. I see technical growth and understanding and experimentation, but what I'm most fascinated by, and I've been spending a lot of time these last two kind of COVID years looking at this is that the images that I took with that SX-70 in that very first year of realizing photography could be a, a creative output for me, I still love them. They're, I'd be happy with them today if I took them today. There's something very pure about what I was looking at and what I saw and how I processed it, even though it was completely unconscious at the time. There wasn't, I, I would have been looking through this camera just not knowing anything about what I was doing other than seeing things as a designer would. So I knew how to put things in rectangles and <laughs> how to compose, but that was the limit of it. And it was just a, um, yeah, it's just it's just a fascinating thing for me to be able to draw a line from the very first images right through to what I'm doing now and see that there is a very strong connecting thread there. And again, it's, for me, it's that's where that how comes from in that statement. It's not a why. I have lots of other whys, but the whys are very contextual. The how is baseline for me. How I see the world is that's something none of us really understand that well. I think we only have one perspective through our eyes, through our entire lives. And that perspective doesn't change. What's inside our head might change and our you know, philosophy might change, but our, our eyes, our vision doesn't actually change. We're always looking out from our point of view. It's something that I really value about looking at other people's photography as well, is that I think it's the, the closest we can come to seeing through other people's eyes, much like writing is the closest we can come to seeing inside someone else's head and thinking like someone else. When we read what someone else has written, we're basically getting to plant their thought process in our own head for that moment. And sometimes that moment lasts a very long time if, if what we read resonates with us. And it's the same with looking at a photograph or looking at a painting or even watching a film. We sometimes connect with it, sometimes we don't. When we connect with that, with what someone else saw, it sticks with us, it stays with us, and it changes the way that we think and process. And it's the exact same with music, right? So all of these different forms of artistic output are a way of understanding how we see the world, but it's also an opportunity for other people to understand how we, how this other person, this other artist uh, has seen or heard or experienced or thought about the world that we live in. And that's one of the things that is most precious about all forms of art to me. Absolutely. I completely agree. It's very comforting to know that when you take a photograph of something, you're not just capturing the place or the person, but you're actually capturing the essence and how you felt during the time. And you can look back on that later and maybe understand what your subconscious was doing at the time, as you mentioned yourself. So it's something that I haven't considered before and it's definitely inspiring me to look back at my work and see how I was looking at the world back then. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I think... Uh... 
it benefits it benefits all of us regardless of whether it's our writing or our music or our photography or whatever our output is it take the time to look back at what you used to do and take some time while you're doing that to understand what was going on in your head back then and how that might have affected your art in in whatever way that is you know it's it's the the nice thing is is that there doesn't have to be any judgment on it it's just a a, a matter of looking and listening and feeling and thinking and allowing whatever you learn by doing that to help you grow and help inform whatever you do next. Absolutely. In an interview for Amateur Photographer, you talked about the importance of being mindful while shooting. And that's, uh, we're basically touching on what you said about setting boundaries and uh, letting people know about how you work as a photographer. But in that interview, you said that film photography stops you from constantly checking your photographs and worrying about the next shot. And I think that's such a great way to approach life and art. In a world where social media and technology are very present, what can photographers do to be more mindful? (laughs) Well, yeah, I I think one thing that we can do to be more mindful is just to not look at our cameras, even when we're shooting digital. So one thing I started doing before I started shooting professionally, it was back in 2009, I think. I might have been on my first digital camera or I might have just got my second one back then. And... I remember talking about this exact topic with a friend of mine who was also a designer, but we were both photography enthusiasts at that point. And we both shot a lot of film as well. And one of the things that we were very conscious of back then was how much more distracting shooting digital was because we would always look at the back of our camera after we took a picture, which never happens when you're shooting film because you can't. So uh, even back then I, I, I was aware that there's, distraction was a problem because it felt like a problem. It took away from some of the joy and pleasure of just shooting for myself. And we put together a few ideas back then, which is kind of funny to look at now because they still are valid. The the world of camera makers hasn't solved these problems. And this is, again, comes full circle to one of the things I mentioned earlier about technology not being made to benefit the humans that it's made for. It's not something that is just inherent with technology. It's that it's just not being thought about or it's not being prioritized. So we could very easily design digital cameras that were less distracting by default. Maybe you could still look at things if you wanted to, but they shouldn't be showing us something by default all the time because we know as humans that we're easily distracted. If you give us the chance to be distracted, we will be distracted. So one of the things that I'd started doing very early on in thinking about this and how to hack my digital camera to make it less distracting was I switched off the auto preview, which anyone can do. And if you're listening to this and you haven't done this on your camera yet, just go into your settings, which depending on what camera you have might take you more time to find the the, the exact setting than others, but find the setting that switches the auto preview off. It'll change the way you shoot without doing anything else to that camera. There are other things you can do, but the biggest thing is is just to get out of the habit of shoot, look, shoot, look, shoot, look. It becomes a little bit more difficult with mirrorless cameras, which have a screen inside the viewfinder because we're seeing the screen and we, we don't have to take the camera away from our face to see that preview, but also that preview then gets literally gets in the way of shooting the next picture. The number of images you might miss, the number of moments you might miss because you're distracted by looking at what you just shot is kind of horrifying to me. And it's something that weirdly 
smartphones are brilliant at and they don't get enough credit for because smartphones get a lot of ire from people for being a distraction themselves. And I'm not saying they aren't. I've already criticized technology enough earlier. We spend too much time on these things. But when they're in camera mode, they're almost literally a window. You're, you're holding it up in front of you and you're seeing what's on the other side of it. But what you're seeing is kind of an exact representation of what that image is going to look like. You're seeing what the sensor is seeing. So it's really a, a mirrorless camera again. And what's great about it is that when you hit that shutter, the camera doesn't show you that picture you just took. The camera shows you what's what the camera's seeing. It just hides the image away and you have to go through at least one or two taps on most smartphones to be able to see the picture you just took, which is just difficult enough that most people won't do it unless they have to. Like you're, you're taking a family photo on your smartphone and you wanna make at a wedding and you wanna make sure you got it. Well, sure, snap the picture, tell everyone to wait a second, go and check it, make sure no one's blinking. Okay, great. And that example actually works for any camera, right? If you're shooting a digital camera and it's a moment like that that you don't want to have missed, that's when the digitalness is great. But when you're shooting analog, it's why you bracket and you shoot, you know, you might shoot 10 pictures of the family at the wedding rather than one, just to make sure that you've got enough coverage. So there, there's always a way to kind of get around that. But the interesting thing is, is that with analog, you don't have the option. So you have to pre-visualize if you want to make sure the image is going to come out correctly, whatever it is. Your brain does most of the work. Your, you know what film stock you have in there. You know the ISO that you're at. And you know, hopefully, how that film and ISO performs in particular lighting conditions. And you're doing all of that work very, very quickly. The better you are, especially the more practiced you, you become, the more of that work gets done at a very subconscious level. And you just you're thinking ahead at every moment. So when you trip that shutter, that's actually the almost the end of the process. Whereas with digital, we've got so much post-production we can do. And again, we can look at the image to make sure we've done it right. So instead of doing the work in advance and pre-visualizing everything, we tend to get a bit more lazy and let ourselves check afterwards. And we question ourselves. And it's one of the things I really don't like about shooting digital because even though I know this, and even though I can hack the camera settings to be as little of a distraction as possible, if I'm shooting a digital camera, I'll still check sometimes. And it drives me nuts. I and mean, it makes me laugh as well, but it's a perfect example of how knowing how distracted we can be is not enough to stop ourselves from being distracted. And the more we can understand that as humans, the especially as creatives, where distractions can actually be horrible to us for our creative output, the more we start to understand the requirement to protect ourselves and to limit those distractions. So as far as being more present, just do whatever you can to, to minimize the distractions that your digital camera might make. You know, a, a basic thing, if you're shooting, say, a Canon, and everyone who's shot a Canon should know this uh, over the years, is you turn off the autofocus beep. And, you know, there are other cameras that do that, but I mean, that's like, that's a distraction, not just to the photographer, but to everyone around, right? And we all know that as photographers, if we've heard that little autofocus confirmation beep go off on any camera, it bugs us when we're not a photographer. And, and we always wonder, well, why is that photographer left that on? And it's mostly because we just start to ignore it very quickly because it's just one of the sounds our cameras make. It's just like a shutter. But that's a great example for me about how many little distractions there are and whether if it's a distraction to people we're around or a distraction to us, it's still a distraction. And the more of those we can minimize, 
the better off we'll be as creators and just as people. If you're out shooting a landscape on your own, you're on a hike in the mountains, you don't want to be distracted by anything but the nature that's in front of you and around you. I mean, why would you want to be? And I know, you know, it doesn't mean that it'll take away from someone's experience if they're shooting a, you know, a, a sunrise and they want to make sure that they got the f-stop right. I mean, that's again, there are times when the digitalness of a digital camera makes sense, but I think that it's about intention. When we let the designers of the technology, in this case, the camera, decide what's best for us, we're not doing it right. We have to take all those settings, all those defaults that someone gives us on our phone, on our laptop, on our digital camera, and we need to learn everything we can about those settings and practice with that hardware, whatever it happens to be, until we figure out what we like and what we don't like, what's good for us and what isn't good for us, and then make our own defaults. And once we make our own defaults, it's the same with software too. I mean, everything comes with defaults. All those defaults aren't perfect for us. Uh, to take a better example, think about a car. If you got in a car and the seat position was not the most comfortable for you, but you just left it there, you know, and, and you were too far away from the pedals, so you were constantly having to reach to hit the brake or the clutch or the gas, that would be ridiculous. No one would think that that was a smart idea to just leave the seat in the position that whoever was in it before left it. But that's essentially what we do with our cameras is that we just, we let all of these defaults stay where they are. And the fact is these are computers inside a camera body. We can program or at least change the settings of almost everything that that camera does. And it's better when we do, when we sit and think about it and we just go, no, 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 this is best for me. And now this object, this tool, this creative tool is going to be working on my behalf as an extension of me, not requiring me to adapt to it. Well, this is mind-blowing information. I've never even thought about it. I've just accepted settings as they are, you know, no matter what technology I'm using. So I'm really blown away right now, really thinking about how I should change all the things that I use, especially my camera. I'm so guilty of always checking the photos that I take. I recently went to an animal park where the animals roam free, like llamas and mm -hmm. ostriches and stuff. And it was such an incredible first-time experience for me. And I had my DSLR, my Canon with me. And I wanted to be there for the animals and I wanted to interact with them. But at the same time, I really wanted to get a good shot. We took like so 400 photographs, I think. And for each photograph, I kept checking the focus. I kept checking if the lighting was okay. And that took away from the experience, to be honest, because I was so obsessed with the, with the previews, essentially. And uh, yeah, so this was a, a good lesson for me. Definitely not something I should do again. Well, and your story is a great example, too, about how when we let the tool lead us in a particular direction, we also limit our, our own understanding of the tool and how it works. Mm -hmm. This is a bigger, broader discussion that, again, technology is kind of a, a big part of. You know, if your tool is a paintbrush, it's not really doing much to influence you other than whatever its shape and size and the handle and the brushes, the bristles rather. And even those things, those are all decisions that someone else made and but we know very quickly whether it's doing what we want it to or not because of the simplicity, the same with a pen or a pencil. You know, if, if you get a pen or a pencil that doesn't feel right in your fingers, you're not going to use it because you know that there's another one out there that'll fit better and you'll, you won't have to think about. But with technology, technology is kind of morphed to being a smaller number of things that are capable of doing so many more things, uh, depending on how you have the settings. 
And because of that, though, it's it can be overwhelming, and we're no one ever taught us how to interact with those things. And so for me, the like the understanding of things like depth of field and how your autofocus system works when we have you know hundreds of autofocus points on new digital cameras, and most people will just leave them as is, but they're completely programmable and customizable. The same with every other setting on your camera about how it processes light and how it saves files and how it does pretty much everything in, in your shooting workflow at, in the moment. And when you switch everything off, it's just like shooting in full auto. If you shoot in full auto on a digital camera, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a computer. You should be letting it do things for you. But if you don't understand how to use all the manual settings, you're kind of limiting yourself as an artist because you also now don't understand what the camera, the computer in the camera rather is doing. You don't understand the decisions it's making. And that is one of the reasons I think why we don't fully trust what we're doing. We're pressing the button, but we don't understand what's happening. And much like I mentioned earlier with clients not understanding because why would they understand, not understanding what we do and it seems like magic. I think that same relationship is built up with our cameras and our other technologies that we don't exactly understand what they're doing. So it seems kind of like magic. And because of that, we give ourselves over to it. We make assumptions about what it's doing. Sometimes those assumptions are correct. Sometimes they aren't. And ultimately it means that we're not in control. And as artists, we should be in control to a greater extent, not to the extent that we get overwhelmed by the technical settings, which a lot of people can be. Some people like that. If that's what they like, great. Um, there are a lot of amazing technical photographers, just like there are a lot of amazing technical painters. But there are also amazing impressionist painters, and there are photographers who don't know much about their camera settings. They just are really good at, at seeing light and seeing and understanding stories and moments and framing things. So there is a spectrum, but I, I still think that we should know where on that spectrum we are. And the more we understand that, the more we can say, okay, well, I need my camera to do this to, to match me rather than me have to change the kind of artist I am or to affect the experiences that I'm having out in the world just because the camera has decided to make me do it that way. That's right. Yeah. Technology shouldn't be the one controlling us. We should be using it, utilizing it for to create something that reflects our personalities or reflects what we want to express in a given moment. Uh, again, great perspective. Uh, again, very mind-blowing. I'm very excited about this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. Let's skip to a more general question. What is something that every aspiring, aspiring film photographer should know? Oh, every aspiring film photographer. So I guess I guess something that I find a lot of people don't know is, or don't think about, maybe it's both. I'm curious about which one it is, but film is is a chemical process. It's a physical thing. And so even though it's it can be just as magical as digital images, what's most interesting to me about it being a physical process is that you can do different things with it because of that. There's a, an additional step in the developing of film, whether you're developing yourself or you're having a lab do it, that, that you can play with. You can actually change the nature of the film by processing it differently, whether that's different chemicals. And these are things people used to know but have forgotten because when film and analog was the only thing you could do, everyone knew kind of all of the ways you could bend and break it because that was the thing. And everyone knew what you could do in the dark room because that, that was the output. You weren't scanning it, you were printing it. And there were more tricks you could do when printing in addition to 
tricks when developing. So there are these three stages and there's still three stages. You're shooting and you're picking your film that you're going to shoot. You're also deciding how you're going to expose it. Are you going to overexpose it, underexpose it? Each of those things do different things to the film. Then there's the developing. And in the developing stage, you can do things called pushing or pulling, which a lot of people don't understand. And, and, and it's easy to see because why they don't understand it, because I think it's explained incorrectly or, or oddly sometimes, maybe a lot, lot more than sometimes. And uh, even I had this problem initially, I didn't understand the difference between pushing and pulling and overexposing and underexposing. And they're very, very different things. Pushing and pulling happen to an entire role and it happens at the time of development. Overexposing and underexposing is image by image. And you can treat uh, every image on a roll differently in that regard and you'll get different results from that. But the point is basically that it, it is a physical chemical kind of combination of, of, a, of a process of an art form. And if you aren't experimenting with what that allows you to do differently, you're really missing out on a lot of potential for your art. And the easiest way to experiment with this is with black and white and pushing film. I mean, pulling film is interesting as well. I think people should experiment with all of it. And if you have a lab, talk to them about it and say, hey, I'd really like to try uh, experimenting with pushing and pulling. Uh, here's the film, here are the films that I usually shoot. What do you recommend that I start with? Having conversations with labs is hugely, hugely beneficial because all they do day in and day out is develop film. <laughs> uh, and some of them, you know, most of them will scan film as well. Some of them will also print film. So they really have an understanding of the chemistry and, and what these things are capable of. So if you're unsure, just go to your lab and ask them. They'll be happy to have this conversation rather than search on the internet where you might get good results, or you might get misleading results. But I push film a lot and pushing film is just basically developing it for longer. It's overcooking it essentially. And what that does to film is it, uh, it essentially allows you to treat a film rather than as a, a fixed ISO or you know, light sensitivity that it says on the, on the packaging, it allows you to treat it as a higher ISO. So more sensitive to light. There's trade-offs with that. Usually you'll add more contrast to the film, regardless of what it is. Uh, with color films, you can sometimes, maybe frequently, get color shifts when you push the film because you're changing the chemistry. Sometimes those color shifts might be nice, sometimes not. Sometimes the contrast might be nice, sometimes not. It's the same with pulling film. Pulling film is undercooking it. And much like undercooking uh, or underbaking a cake, you know, it might be a little soft and, and mushy on the inside. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and with, with film, you'll, you might get shadows that, uh, that feel softer and you know, an overall kind of flatter look, which we've seen, uh, I'm sure when, we've all seen when looking at images, but we not, might not understand how, how to get there. Uh, you might also um, get that same kind of look by underexposing, but the details of underexposing versus pulling, for instance, will be different. You can still correctly expose film that you're going to pull in the process, which means if you had a 100 ISO film, you'd have it processed as if it were a 50 ISO film. And that might reduce contrast where pushing will increase contrast, but you can always add the contrast back in. It might also shift some of the colors. It might just make them more muted. You don't really know is my point until you experiment. And this is something that you can't really do with digital because all of that gets done in post-production, but we still have to kind of expose as correctly as possible for the digital sensor in order to have that playtime later. With film, you kind of have to make some of these decisions either as you're shooting or before you shoot an entire roll. You have to say, okay, well, like, a great example is I like shooting uh, Ilford HP5 black and white film, which is boxed 
rated on the box as 400 ISO. Early on, I decided I didn't like it at 400 ISO. I didn't like the way it looked. And then I tried pushing it and I really like it at 800 ISO and 1600 ISO, which in the language of pushing and labs, that would be pushed one stop to 800 because the stop difference is kind of 400 multiplied by two is an extra stop of light. So that's a one-stop push and 1600 is a two-stop push. You can actually push H, uh, HP5 to ridiculous amounts higher than that. And you get a lot chunkier grain, a lot more contrast, but you can still get an image. So that's both an example of a stylistic choice, which is for me, I like how it looks with a little bit more contrast and heavier grain at 800 and 1600, but it also allows me to shoot at smaller apertures handheld because I have twice as much ISO or, or, or three times as much ISO um, if I use it either of those film speeds. And that's something that when I first did it blew my mind. And then very quickly I realized, oh, of course, because this is just chemistry. And as long as you understand for each film stock, what the specific chemistry of the film stock and the developing chemicals will allow you to do, and the only way you understand that is by trial and error yourself, you don't really understand the medium you're working within. It would be like using oil paints and never mixing colors, which would be ridiculous for anyone who's painted with oils before. It's like, well, you, you know, you, you, you'd never be able to use pink because you'd never mix white and red. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and not just that, but the, the way you get a range of colors in oil paints is by mixing very, very specific amounts it's, you're basically just doing a, a simple form of, of chemistry, mixing these two different materials together to get something new. So I'd, I'd just encourage everyone who's new to have a conversation with their lab, or if you're developing yourself and you're in that camp, which is great, um, read up on pushing and pulling, pick one film stock that you like shooting and you know how it looks when you shoot it normally, and then shoot a roll and push it one stop, and then shoot another roll and pull it one stop, and don't change anything about how you expose it. And just see how the differences look to you and how you like it. And you can start doing that with more and more film stocks. And it just kind of opens up all sorts of possibilities. Um, the last idea in that line that I'll um, plant in everyone's head is that I, I also really like Kodak Portra 800, which is the most expensive film stock almost. And I, I would shoot it all the time for everything if it wasn't the most expensive film stock. But it's a beautiful, beautiful higher ISO color film. And I also like equally Lomography 800 color negative. They're both really, really nice films and they've got really fine grain for an 800 ISO film. But a few years ago, I started trying to experiment with pushing them because I like shooting them handheld. And I thought, well, I wonder how these will look rather than just treating them as things to use when I don't have a lot of light, which is usually what we associate with higher ISO. What if I just use these as color palettes and I wonder what it would look like it pushed one stop at 1600 ISO shooting, you know, out on the street, but instead of shooting at uh, F 5.6 or F eight as my smallest aperture, now I can shoot at F 11 and F 16 and still shoot handheld shutter speeds, but I'm getting much more in focus and I'm getting much sharper images. And maybe I can shoot more quickly because I can zone focus a little bit more easily without having to exactly nail where the focus is because everything's going to be in focus and sharp. And it completely changed the way that I shot with those films because once I tested it and I realized that the films still looked great, they didn't actually get a whole lot more contrast. The colors on those films didn't shift all that much. And I still liked the way they looked. And now it was like I have extra film stocks in my bag when I have those two. It's the same with HP5. HP5, I have, I have it at 400 ISO if I decided I wanted it, but 
to me, it's a it's an 800 ISO film because I will always shoot it pushed. But sometimes it can be 1600 and sometimes it can be 3200 because I've shot it at both of those film speeds and gotten really good results. So by having one roll in my bag, I actually have a potential of three rolls out of that one roll because I can shoot it at these two or three different film speeds. And it makes film photography so much more interesting, but also so much more flexible. And the inflexibility, the perceived inflexibility of film is one of the things that I think makes people shy away from it, but it's only because we, we, we don't experiment enough. Right. It's incredible to, to hear about all the possibilities in film photography. I haven't experimented much with it, unfortunately, but just uh, finding out about all the things that are available and for people with different budgets, for people with different creativity levels, it's uh, very uplifting to know that. So thank you very much for sharing. My pleasure. I think everyone should try film, even if it's a Fuji Instax little point and shoot Instax mini at some point. It's still it's it's still magic to me and it will always be magic and enjoyable to me. And it's um, yeah, everyone should try it if they haven't. I bought the Instax Mini uh, 11 a couple of years ago, and I absolutely love it. I remember how I felt when I first uh, when I took my first photo with it. I was like in my early 20s, and I felt like a child. I was so excited. I was like, this is developing in front of my eyes. I can't believe it. It's just <laughs> it's the best feeling ever. Definitely very, very different to digital. They're both good in their own way. Wonderful, ways. isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yes. Very, very good. Yeah. <laughs> I have one more question for you, Dan. What is the one thing you'd like to achieve in this great big photography world? Well, that is a, that's a big question itself, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, in general, I'm always trying to feel like I'm learning and getting better and trying new things, but that's not necessarily like an end point of achieving. That's just um, a constant. I guess, personally, I've spent my entire life, essentially my entire uh, creative professional life, doing things for other people. And I referenced a bit earlier that over the last five to 10 years, I've started to incorporate more self-briefs, artistic projects, things that I want to do myself that no one's asking me to do. And that's still something that feels very new to me because it, it's still a, a smaller percentage of my, of my life as a creative. And it, it speaks back to when I was a painter in my you know, when I was 11, 12, 13 years old, right? And I was only doing things for myself. And I really, really loved that. And it's one of the reasons why I'm doing more of it is that I know I just, I love it. And there's a purity in it. And it's, it's a chance for me to, to communicate things that no one else might ask to be communicated. And I think I just, that's probably a version of my answer to this question is that I want to do more of that because I don't know where that's going to lead. There are documentary projects, not just in stills form and book form, but in, I want to do documentary filmmaking as well. And there are stories that I want to tell that there might not be anyone else on the planet who wants to tell. And I think that's one of the best things about art in general is that we have that ability, each of us, to be able to communicate something that even though there are you know, 8 billion people on the planet, we might be the only person with our collective experiences who can tell a particular story the way that we can and it seems ludicrous to say it out loud like that because it doesn't seem like the odds would be in favor of that being the case but I think it is and so I think that for me that's that's what I want to to continue to focus on with my photography is to 
continue to find the stories that I want to tell, no matter how large or small they are, and and just see where that leads me. Uh, maybe it'll lead me to something that will leave a big mark on a lot of other people. Uh, maybe it it won't. Maybe it'll just be something that allows me to tell stories that are important to me. But I'm kind of okay with either of those. I don't necessarily need to be famous through my photography. I mean, I I know I'm lucky that through things like Instagram, I've found a lot of attention that a lot of people don't get. I am completely aware of that. And it has been a an amazing blessing to have that kind of that attention and the access that that gives. But it's also detrimental sometimes because that attention can be a negative thing when you feel too much pressure on the types of things you're creating. And so for me, like the more focused I am on making the things that only I can make and maybe trying to do less things that I think anyone could make, which is hard, especially when someone asks you and they're going to pay you to do it. It's going to be very difficult to kind of go, eh, no, I, anyone could do that. You don't need me to do that. Um, and my answer to that is even trying to figure out if how I can put my own spin on it. So I guess that's that's really the the thing I want to achieve, I guess, in this great big photography world is is just making sure that I am staying true to the kind of stories that I know only I can tell and just continually learning what that means and what those look and feel like and just doing a better job every time uh, so that I'm using my time wisely. That's a wonderful answer. I believe that's something many photographers can relate to, including myself, because I like that you touched on social media pressures or whatever kind of pressure we put on ourselves, whether it's self-imposed or something that comes from an external source, we sometimes feel like we have to create a certain kind of photograph or we have to act a certain way or say certain things. And that's a difficult issue in today's modern world where social media is ruling, <laughs> but it's a uh, it's definitely very important to stay true to your authentic style as a photographer to make sure that uh, you're telling your story. There was another photographer that I had a call with recently, and he said it's very important to shoot from the heart. And that's something that I used to do, but now it's something that I do less of. So I'm always thinking about what people will think when they look at my work or how it will be perceived online. And it's just I feel inside that that's the wrong perspective to have. So I feel very uncomfortable <laughs> your words. And I, I'm sure that you will continue to take stunning photographs from the heart that speak to you because you're clearly very good at setting boundaries. And yeah, I want to thank you for sharing so much wisdom with me in this podcast. I had so much fun listening to you and speaking with you about all things photography and technology. And um, I wish you the very best with your photography journey. Well, thank you very much. And it was an absolute pleasure having this conversation. I, uh, I've i got a lot more to think about as a result of your questions than I did before we, we started. And that's, that's, um, that's always a wonderful thing. Oh, I'm very happy to hear that. Thank you so much. The Great Big Photography World wouldn't be what it is without our incredible listeners. We're grateful for the time you take to listen to other photographers' stories and share your feedback with us. If you'd like to help us keep this podcast running smoothly, you can become a member on our website. In return for your help, we'll provide you with all kinds of exciting perks. Go to greatbigphotographyworld.com. There's a link to it in the show notes. This was quite a long interview, but when it was over, I felt that only a few minutes had passed. That's how much fun I had. And it's all thanks to Dan's entertaining way of speaking and all of the amazing things that he shared. 
I hope you learned a lot from this episode. Personally, I turned off image preview my camera right after we finished speaking and it has completely changed the way that I approach photography. I don't worry too much about the pictures that I take. I check them, of course, from time to time, but mainly I'm there in the moment just enjoying the scene in front of me. So if you haven't tried this yourself yet, then I highly recommend doing that because it might help you have a healthier relationship with photography. I really look forward to producing the next 100, 200, 300 hopefully episodes with you by our side. Thank you so much once again for supporting this podcast. We're very happy that we can finally share this 100th episode with you and we will see you next week. There's a simple reason why photographycourse.net is the highest rated photography community in the world. It's because the people who use it made it that way. Why not join us right now? Improve your skills, get exposure, and discover an exciting new world of photography. While you're at it, claim your special discount code by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member.